matter with you? Oh, me? Nothing. I'm just glad to see you. <laughs> Must be. You're still shaking my hand. Oh, oh well. Uh, come on in. <laughs> I believe you two know each other. <laughs> Good evening. Well, this is a surprise. Yeah, it is a surprise, isn't it? That's what I thought you'd say, that it was a surprise. <laughs> hi, Andy. Oh, hi. Family, you know what Andy said when he saw Miss Crump sitting there? He said it was a surprise. Oh, really? Yeah, he just walked in, took one look, and... How'd you say that, Andy? Say it for Thelma Lou. I just said that it was a surprise. <laughs> That's just the way he said it. <laughs> you were surprised, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, but I'm not anymore. You know, I hardly recognized you without your uniform. Yeah, he does look different, don't he? I think he looks taller. Don't you, Thelma Lou? Don't you think Andy looks taller when he ate in his uniform? Come on, Bart. Well, you do. You look taller. Miss Crump, why don't you just stand up there alongside uh, Andy and see if you don't look tall? Uh, Barn, go on. Uh, go on, just stand there alongside of him. <laughs> there, you see. I believe you're right. They look great together, just great. Well, I hope you aren't all starved. Dinner won't be for a little while yet. Well, what's the hurry? We want to talk a little while anyway, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> why don't we just sit down? Yeah. Come on, just have a seat. <laughs> there we go. Dinner certainly does smell wonderful, whatever it is. Oh, it's just leg of lamb. Mm. Leg of lamb? Good, good. That's my favorite dish. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that, Miss Crump? That's Andy's favorite dish. <laughs> Son of a gun, ever since I can remember, it's been his favorite dish. <laughs> I bet you cook a mean leg of lamb yourself, don't you? Goodness, no. I wouldn't even know where to start. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, really. You mean you don't know how to cook leg of lamb? Uh, Andy's favorite dish? No, as a matter of fact, I'm a terrible cook. <laughs> You're just saying that. You're being modest. <laughs> Barney, Miss Crump's so busy teaching all day, she don't have time to fool with cooking. Oh, yeah, I suppose that's true. <laughs> but then someday when you settle down, I mean, when you get married or something like that, well, you'll probably start to cook, and then you'll just make a terrific leg of lamb. <laughs> Andy's favorite dish. <laughs> I really doubt it. Well, holy cats, while you feed your husband. I mean, if you, if you get married or something. Well, I suppose you'll just have to settle for frozen dinners. You're kidding. Well, what's wrong with frozen dinners, Bart? They're good. I like them. No, you don't. <laughs> You're going to be home all day. Well, then you'll have lots of time. Ah, but I won't be home all day. I'll still be teaching, I hope. You mean you're not going to give up your job when you get married? Well, I hope not. I enjoy teaching. Well, women don't do that anymore, Barn. This is the 20th century. I know what century it is. <laughs> don't you think we'd better start getting that dinner on? I don't think it's ready yet, Barney. Well, let's just check on that. Excuse us. <laughs> Look, the sooner we get this over with, the better. Barney, why? Because I made a mistake, that's why. This day me for Andy, now we cross her off our list. But why? Because she can't cook, she can't do nothing. Barney. Now she's out, O-U-T, out. Now get the dinner up. But I don't think it's ready yet. Ready or not, let's get it over with and get on to the next one. <laughs> okay, folks, dinner. <laughs> All right, how many of you had all of your expectations met in your spouse when you married them? I don't see any witnesses here today, so uh, I'll let your silence speak for itself. You know, it's interesting how young couples, when they 
they, uh, they're in the office of the pastor, and I've sat across many of these young couples over the years, and they're, you know, their hearts are just like this, and their eyes are just like this, you know, and you can begin to talk about the reality of marriage, and they have no idea what they're about to embark on, do they? Did you? Not really. And, uh, you know, it's interesting how two people who fell in love and who are in love, who intend to be together for the rest of their lives, come together with these incredible expectations. And many times, if not most of the time, those expectations are not the same. And they began then to fulfill then that th- those expectations they had when they got married over the course of time. And she begins to implement those expectations and he begins to implement those expectations. And as a result of that, that at some point they begin to clash. And as a result of that, well, we know what the end result of that is. It's interesting that no matter what our expectations are, the Bible has a lot to say about the expectations of marriage matrimony and how two people who fall in love ought to then conduct their marriage together. I want us to take a look at a marriage ceremony in John chapter 2 together. Let's stand in honor of God's word. Let's take a look at this incredible narrative as Jesus comes on the scene in a marriage and just takes what would have been a catastrophic failure and makes it into a wonderful miracle and blesses these two as they begin their lives together. John chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Father, I pray that as we stand in honor of your word, that you would speak truth into our lives, into our relationships, for all of us here this morning are a part of a family. And that family began when two people fell in love and committed their life and their love to each other for the rest of their lives. And while it is tragic that some do not spend the rest of their lives together and the reality of divorce hits, it's great to know that there's grace that covers and there's grace that continues to permeate and to develop and to reflect itself in our lives as we seek now to follow you with clear understanding about what marriage is. And so, God, I pray that there's anyone here today was hurting because of struggling marriage or because of divorce, that you would heal them and strengthen them and encourage them by this word today. And I pray that those of us who are here that are married and that we're in this intimate, one-of-a-kind type of relationship, that you would use this passage, this narrative today, to strengthen the relationships that we have. I know there are a few in here this morning that are intending at one point to get married or who have already planned to get married. And I pray that you'd use this passage 
to equip them to be able to confront whatever challenges will come into their marriage. And I pray that you'd use this passage to help strengthen that relationship for your glory and for your honor. God, enable and equip me to articulate quickly the nine principles that are in this passage so that your spirit can move freely through your truth to impact our lives in the way that you've designed already in your sovereign grace to do in this place of worship today. You're present here. We are your people. Speak to us. Don't allow us to leave unimpacted by your presence and by the power of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. A little Sally had been introduced to uh, the fairy tale uh, in the book Snow White. And her dad had read it to her for the first time. She was about four years old. Uh, she had received it uh, at her birthday, and dad had taken the time to read through it. And, and uh, while her and her mom were together trying to, you know, cook dinner that night, I'm not sure a four-year-old was much help, but little Susie was giving the help that a four-year-old can give. And she proceeded then to tell her mom that dad had just read her Snow White and the Dwarfs. She said, Mom, you're not going to believe it. There's this very, very handsome prince who fell in love with this lady and she was asleep and he gave her a kiss and the kiss woke her up. And mom said, is that true? Did, you, did dad read that? She said, yes, mom, dad read that to me just a little while ago. Mom then asked, well, Susie, then, then after he kissed her, uh, did they live happily ever after after the kiss? She said, oh, no, mom, they didn't live happily ever after. They got married. <laughs> <clears throat> Is it possible for two people to live happily ever after, after marriage? Is it possible? I got an amen from a guy in here. Haven't heard that from too many ladies, though. You know, happiness is based upon circumstances, on happenstance. And joy comes from the Lord. And it is true that two people who walk down an aisle, much like this one, and stand before family and friends in a ceremony like most of us in here have, have participated or we have, we have witnessed, as they walk out the door, they intend for their marriages, for their lives together to be eternally happy. But the sad reality is that is not always the case. For statistics tell us that the first marriage that, that, that happens in America, 41% of those marriages will end a divorce, 41%. Of the second marriages, 60% end a divorce. Of third marriages, 73 to 75% end in divorce. 63% of American children do not grow up in the home of their same biological parents. Think about that. 63% of American children today do not grow up in the home of their mom and their dad, their biological parents. Children of divorce are four times more likely themselves to experience and to get a divorce. The state of the family today is, in, is, in a, is an alarming rate. It, it is, is staggering how, how hard and how complicated not only marriages are, but, but the rate of divorce in our society. And we would think that as a church, those of us who know Christ and who believe Christ and who follow Christ and who adhere to the biblical principles and teachings of the Word of God would say, you know, that's not true in the church. It is true in the church. For the statistics inside of the church are no different than they are outside of the church. 
That's a sad reality for us to reflect upon as a church. Those of us who profess faith in Christ and to follow the principles and the precepts of Christ and believe in the sanctity of marriage. But the fact that divorce is as prevalent in the church as it is outside of the church seems to indicate to me that Jesus Christ does not make a difference in someone's marriage. Would that not be the logical conclusion? Well, I, 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 would, I would beg to differ with you or to argue with you, but I believe Jesus does make a significant difference in a person's life and in a marriage if he is allowed to do so. And the sad reality is that even those of us who profess faith in Christ and are committed to follow him, more often than not, like the world, we choose not to make Jesus Christ the solution to the problems in our marriages. For there is nothing that Christ cannot fix. There is no miracle too great that he cannot intervene in a relationship to restore the relationship and to renew and revive the love that two had when they walked down an aisle and committed before family and friends their life and their love for all eternity. Jesus does make a difference, and he can make a difference. We sang about him this morning. Didn't the choir do a great job with that? Christ makes a difference. And he made the difference in this ceremony that was taking place. So I want to take a look at very quickly nine very important principles that will help us stay together for a lifetime. For I am convinced that what God has, has called us to when we stand before family and friends, before God in an aisle in front of a pastor, and we commit our hearts and our life and our love for all eternity, that he intends for that marriage to last a lifetime. Not just endure, not just survive, but to thrive for a lifetime. How do we make that possible? Let's look, take a look at this narrative in John 2, beginning with verse 1 and verse 2. We must first, if we hope to see our marriage endure and last and thrive for a lifetime, we must first ask Jesus to be present. If you take a look at the narrative in verse 1, it said, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and a mother of Jesus was there. It's interesting that, that John identifies with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that was the third day of the week. Uh, he's beginning to list in successions the things that happened that week. We know that earlier in the week that Jesus had an encounter with Philip. He called Philip to be a disciple. Jesus extended that invitation to him. Philip accepted that invitation, and then he went and found his friend Nathaniel. And he said, Nathaniel, you're not going to believe it, but I have discovered Jesus, the Messiah. And, 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 you know, he says, can anything good come out of Galilee? I'm of Nazareth, that's what he asked. And, and uh, he said, yeah, the, the Messiah came out of Nazareth. And so he takes him to Jesus, and Jesus said, hey, man, I saw you when you were first under that big tree. And it blows him out of the water. Nathaniel professes faith in Jesus, and he says, thou art the Son of God. You are the Messiah, the King of Israel. And after that, we see Jesus now as the chain of events began to unfold for us, that he finds himself now at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Nathaniel, more than likely, was from this very town. And nonetheless, we see that Mary was invited to be participate in this wedding. Now, the reason why Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there is that most scholars, most interpreters seem to understand that Mary, more than likely, was not there just to, to, to witness, but she was there as a participant who was more than likely involved with some responsibilities. And the reason why Mary had some responsibilities is primarily because Mary was related to the family somehow. We don't know exactly how she was related to the family, but there was some sort of a relation that gave her some sort of responsibility. I'm not sure Mary was just one to take charge, you know, just because that's her nature. You know what I'm talking about? They're those people that just sort of assume command and they take charge of things when things happen. Uh, I'm not sure that's the case here. Mary is, uh, is sort of involved in a responsibility, and Mary is there. Notice it says, 
she was there. That seems to indicate to me that she was there because she was a part of the family. But notice in verse 2, Jesus wasn't just there. Notice Jesus was invited and so, so were his disciples. And the reason the disciples were there is because they're with Jesus. But it says Jesus was invited to the wedding. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding ceremony where Jesus was not invited, you know the difference that it makes in the wedding ceremony. I've been to a few that were secular weddings in which Jesus was not invited. I've been to a few in churches where Jesus was basically tipped, they, they tipped their hat to Christ, but he really wasn't a part of the ceremony. He really wasn't present in the way that they acknowledged him or recognized him. And I think the reason for that is because how Jesus relates to the individuals in the marriage couple uh, tends to convey itself in the marriage ceremony, but not just in the ceremony, but in their lives much later on. Jesus was there by invitation. Jesus doesn't just bombard his way and take command. He's there because he's been invited, and so are his disciples, and so he is in our lives. By his sovereign grace, he came and he knocked on the door of your heart one day and said, may I come in? And you, you exercise faith and put your trust in Jesus and you open the door, invited him into your heart and took him as your personal savior and made him the Lord of your life. And now you're committed to follow him. You invited him into your life. He likes to be invited. But as we begin to, 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 to involve and, and to become discipled and, and become followers of Christ individually, we then, then must invite him to be a part of our families, but it he must first be invited into our lives as couples. For not only do I have a responsibility individually to walk with him, but I have a responsibility to make him Lord, to invite him to be a part of my marriage because when Christ is not present in my marriage, all of the things that can happen will happen. And even though we make Christ a part of our personal lives and a part of our marriage, doesn't insulate or isolate us from complications and from crisis and from problems. I married a human being, and, and this human being is a fallen creation. Even though this person may know Christ as their Savior and, and, and are committed to following him as Lord, they still struggle with self-centeredness and, and pride and anger and, and forgiveness and, and all of those things that all of us as human beings deal with. And so we're, we're living with another human being, and so it becomes important that we understand that, that, that we are, are to relate to each other in Christ individually and together as a couple. Christ must be invited or he will not be Lord. And so I wonder if Christ has been invited to be an integral part in your personal life and in your marriage. For he doesn't go unless he's invited. He doesn't go unless he's welcomed. And Christ is not there just to, to, to watch. He's there to become a part. He's, he's a participant. He's, he's there to be the one that you turn to when you need him the most. Because the person that you married is, in fact, very human. And the things that are going to come in your life are, in fact, going to be very complicated. And you're going to need the presence of Christ to not only keep you committed to him and to your spouse, but to keep the two of you together for life. So we must ask Jesus to be, a, to be present. Secondly, we must anticipate crisis in our marriage. Notice it says, right off the bat in verse 3, when the wine ran out. And the wine ran out. Now, I know we're Baptist, 
And the first question that comes to your mind is, why was there wine at this wedding reception? Anybody not think that? They must be Presbyterians or something. They weren't Baptists. Because Baptists wouldn't have had this. You didn't think that was funny at all, did you? No, I didn't think so. That's because, never mind, we're not going to go into wine. Baptists aren't supposed to drink. At least not in public. Anyway, the wine ran out. Now, the wine was, was a staple drink back then. It was, was kind of like, you know, uh, the punch that most of us have at our weddings. And uh, it, was, it was wine that was sort of diluted with water. And, and we know that the wine back then was, was uh, the staple drink. And we know and we understand that, that it was a part of the celebration ceremony of most weddings. And that because of the temperature and, and, and the way that things fermented back then, uh, it could be possible for someone to drink more than they should. This wine that had been, you know, gotten, gotten a little bit too warm and they could become inebriated or what we might call drunk. And, and while the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not drink, the Bible does say that we are not to be drunk. And I could go into a whole different subject here and talk about drunkenness and, and all of those kinds of things, but, but I know that you're an intelligent crowd in here. We don't need to go into there. But, but drunkenness and, and what state are you in in drunkenness, uh, we don't need to go there. But, but they, they were serving the wine and the wine ran out. Now I ask you, what kind of groom would allow the wine to run out? I mean, obviously the groom and his family prepared and they planned for this wedding and they knew how many people were going to attend the wedding and, and they knew exactly what they were going to need. And I don't know if you've ever been, uh, had somebody over your house to eat and you ran out of food or if you were responsible for reception and you ran out of, of drink or something like that, how embarrassing that, that must have been. Did you know that during the wedding ceremony to, to have run out of wine during the, the celebration prior to the wedding would have, would have resulted more than likely could have in, 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 a, in a lawsuit? by the bride and her family. It was unconscionable for them to have run out of wine, and, and I'm sure that he had the list and they'd gone over it and checked it a gazillion times. They had planned and prepared not to run out, and all of a sudden, as they're celebrating this incredible festival moment in their, their reunion together and these two families becoming one and the community invited, they, they ran out of wine. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that all the planning and all the preparation that someone might do in the course of, of spending the rest of their lives together with another individual, all that planning and all that preparation cannot avert nor can you avoid catastrophic crisis things from happening in your marriage. It is not possible. Hard times are going to come. You live with a fallen human being that were it not for the grace of God, they wouldn't be saved. And they're still selfish and self-centered. And they're sometimes going to do things that are going to hurt and, and, and whatever. And the world that we live in constantly is bombarding itself and, and, and seeking to influence us in the decisions that we make, not in our personal lives, but in our marriage and our families and all the, the things that happen. You cannot plan nor prepare enough to avoid crisis from happening in your relationship with your spouse. It is not possible. Even as pastors today, we are divorcing at an alarming rate, more so than any other time, I believe, in the history of the church. I don't care what your position, what your occupation, how much planning, how much preparation you've done, hard times are going to come. And I guarantee you there's not a single couple that's been married in here for any length of time, more than a couple of weeks, is going to stand up and say, you know what? 
I've never had a crisis. It's, it, never, there's never been any moment of difficulty living with this person that I've committed to the rest of my life. Now, I know you find that hard to believe, but Patty would never stand up here and say that she's ever had a hard time living with me at all. I'm the pastor. I'm perfect. I'm the easiest man you could possibly ever live with. Can I get an amen to that? No? And I was in a, I just did a funeral earlier this week, and the Baptist pastor got up and said, the more amens I hear, the quicker we end. I didn't hear any amens, so we're going to stay here until 2 o'clock. Anyway, you guys must know me pretty well. But ladies, there's no man easy to live with. Is there, ladies? Ladies, there's no man easy to live with. Is there? Men, is there a lady that's easy to live with? The men are a little more quiet in here than they were in the other service. The ladies were real quiet over there until the men got their shot and I had to give the women another shot at it. The men in here are older and they're a little more braver. Over there, they're younger and they're a little smarter than we are, guys. It's just not easy to be married today. And, and no much, I don't care how much planning or preparation you have, it's never going to be enough to avert or to avoid crisis it will happen which means we must then secondly admit our inadequacies i want you to notice that mary the mother of jesus said to jesus they have no wine in the responsibility that i have to fulfill here in this in this wedding i know that 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 we have no wine now if you need help it's important for you to admit that you need help because unless a person acknowledges and, and admits that I am inadequate in dealing with this other person in my life and, and I don't need someone outside of myself to help me relate to them and help me love them and help me build a family with them, if, if I don't admit that I'm inadequate and incapable of doing that, I, I'm going to fall flat on my face and fail miserably. We as husbands and wives must admit the fact that I don't have what is needed in order to meet the needs of this other person that God gave to me to spend the rest of my life with. Guys, we're guys. We're not gals. Gals, you're not men. And we, we girls here in spink pink and men here in spink blue. And they're two completely, totally different languages. Praise the Lord. It's what attracts blue to pink what attracts pink to blue but in that attraction there's a rub isn't there and so we must admit that that in living with this person I need Jesus to be the focal point of my personal life and in the relational life that I have with this spouse I can't do it on my own notice number four once I admit my inadequacies I knew I need to acknowledge the power of Christ there's a power a resource above and beyond myself that enables me and empowers me and equips me to be able to deal with this individual and for me then to be the spouse that they need. Notice when they ran out of wine, she says they have no wine, but notice it says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. But the mother, his mother Mary, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In other words, Mary, uh, my relationship with you is about to change. Uh, I was your son for a long time, but now I'm the Messiah. And because I'm related to you in this way, he's not being disrespectful, but because I'm, I, am, I am your son and you are my mother, <laughs> uh, I am now 
in the position of being the Messiah. And so I can't therefore do for you what needs to be done simply and solely because of relationship that I have from son to mother. I'm the Messiah. I can't step outside of the bounds of the permissive will of God and to step outside of the plan and the purpose that God has in this marriage and for the reason why the wine has ended. And uh, I think Jesus is conveying this whole concept to her that Mary turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, I know who you are. From, from before you were conceived in my womb, I was visited by an angel. And the angel said, that which is going to be conceived in you it is going to be conceived you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And the Son of God will be born to you. And you will give birth as a virgin to this child. And he will become the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Mary understood and recognized who Jesus was from the time that she coddled her in her arms as she rocked him in the cradle at night to the time she watched him grow. And now that she finds herself in this circumstance where the wine has run out and it's an embarrassing time for her and her family, she recognized and realized that Jesus now is the only power source. No one else knew who to turn to. There wasn't, you know, a grocery store close by. There was nowhere to turn. And so she turns to Jesus. Why? Because she recognized the power of Christ and his ability to make the impossible possible, to take that which was impossible and turn around and convey a miracle in the circumstances. Now, I think we need to acknowledge the power of Christ resident in our individual lives and resident in our marriages if we ever hope to endure and to last a lifetime. Because while you're inadequate and insufficient to meet the needs of your spouse, Jesus is. Jesus is. And Jesus can. And Jesus will. If we'll recognize who he is and turn to him and admit our inadequacies and look to him for the resource that we need in order to relate to this person that God has given to us for the rest of our lives. And so must they do the same toward us. We need to look for a power outside of ourselves to be able to have the marriage and the relationship that God intended. Once we do that, we need to then abandon our will to his will. There's an abandonment that needs to take place because Mary turns to the servants and she says to them, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Now, this is not an open-ended thing where you just do whatever he says. Jesus is about to give them specific instructions. And, and, and as we understand how we're to live to this spouse, this person, and, and, and have this family that God wants us to have, we must look to him and we must search out what exactly it is he's speaking into our lives, what he's directing us to do, what he wants from us, so that as we seek by faith to fulfill that, we then abandon our will to his. And there are times in a marriage where you will have to say, not my will, but your will be done. Because the spouse that you live with has a will, and you have a will. And there are times when that will is going to be conflictual with their will. And in times of that conflictual thing between will and will, the two of you need to come together and say, Lord, not my will, not our will, but your will be done. Especially in a time of crisis. Especially in a time of difficulty. Especially when the circumstances are not pleasant or, or when the passion is running low or when the feelings are not quite there, it, it becomes imperative that these two people fall on their face before God and say, Lord, we die to our will and we ask that your will be done. And I've seen it time and time again where two people are in, an, in my office and they say, you know what, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I love them anymore. I don't think I love them anymore. 
And because I don't love them anymore, I don't want to be married to them anymore. And my answer is always the same. I point to the coffee table in my office, and it has some things on it. And I'll say, let's imagine this coffee table with all these things on it, and you can't see the coffee table. Does that mean the coffee table isn't there? Well, no, that coffee table's there. That's logical. So how do you see the coffee table? How do you know the coffee table? You start pulling things off of the coffee table, and pretty soon you then discover the coffee table's there. I said, you may not think that you love them anymore. You may not feel like you love them anymore. But if you slowly remove the things that are obstructing or hindering or hurting from in this relationship for you feeling what you need to feel, guess what? You'll discover the love has always been there and is there. And it's interesting how that passion and that love that you once shared can return and can be renewed. But it takes an abandonment of our will to his will in order for that to become reality in our lives. Which brings us to number six, we need to allow God to do something new. And that's what he normally does. He brings something new. He doesn't take the old, but he brings something new. We learn and we discover that Jesus told them to take these jars that were used in the, the Jewish rites of, of purification. And, and there's a lot of context there about Christ and, and the purification of Jesus and his blood and all that. But for the sake of, of our subject and why we're speaking about this narrative today, it's important for us to understand that these, these jars here were there primarily, and they were large jars for, for purification rites, but also for the food that was being prepared because it was a several-day feast, and also for the washing of the dishes, for the cleansing of the elements that were to be used as serving utensils. And Jesus is conveying to them, empty all of the water out, put fresh water in it, and fill it to the brim. And they did. Notice they filled the jars with water and they filled them to the brim. Why the brim? Because the, the writer, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants those of us who read it to know that nothing was added to the jars. They were filled to the rim. To put anything else on there, it would spill over. So they filled it to the rim. And what God did through this incredible miracle, he made something new. Out of, out of what was there in that jar. It's interesting that, that what was served was served that was much better than what was there before. You know, I'm convinced that Christ can take the old, stale relationship that you have many times with your spouse. And if we're willing to admit and to make him the Lord of our lives and our relationship, he, he, not, only, he not only revives it, but he makes it new. And it's possible for those of us who have been married for a long period of time to have this freshness and this joy and this intimacy and this love that, that is newer than what it was from the beginning. You know, I've been married 35 years. That's a long time. Would you say that's a long time? Anybody been married more than 35 years in this group? There's a whole bunch. How many married 50 years? Anybody 50? Any longer than 50? 55? 55, hold your hand up. Anybody married longer than 55? 60. Anybody married 60 years? 60 years? Where's I? Do I have a hand? I have a witness? We're going to pray for you. 60 years. Got one? Brother Clarence? Anybody else? Dick and Marie? How long have y'all been married, Dick and Marie? 65? Brother Clarence? Oh, yeah, you got him beat. Well, she is living. She's just with Jesus. Let me ask you something, Dick and Marie. 
Is it better now at 65 than it was at three or two or three years? Yes? Would you have thought that when you walked down the aisle 65 years ago to think that it could be better than what it was then? Too dumb to know. <laughs> you were, Marie wasn't. Right, Miss Marie? Yeah. It gets better, folks. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. We must allow God to do something new. But we must always wait on God for instructions before we move. Which brings us to this, and that's what these guys did. Mary told the, told the servants, and these were not really servants, more than likely they were family members. And she tells these, these servants slash family members, these servers who were at the wedding feast, do whatever he says. And they, they had to wait for instruction. And the first time he said, empty the jars and put water in, and they did. And they filled it to the brim, and they had to wait. Now, what do we do? And as you can imagine, as Jesus is telling them to do this, they probably thought, this is not rational. This is not reasonable. How is it going to make wine out of water? We filled it to the brim. Oh, we could have poured some, you know, some wine in there and mingled it up. Could have done that, but we filled it to the brim. That's what he told us to do. What's going to happen here? And can you imagine now Jesus telling these family members now to begin to dip and to pour and to serve the wine, which they believe was water, and as they did somewhere along the course of, of that, that activity, that obedience, that water became wine. And they served it to the master ceremonies, which I believe was something similar to the best man of the wedding. And he, and he sipped it and he said, wait a minute. You know, the cheapest way to do this is to serve the best wine first. You have a little of it. Then after everybody's gotten a little bit, you know, a little bit tipsy, they, they're not drunk, but they're a little bit lightheaded. Then you serve the watered down stuff. But you serve the best wine now at the end. That's not done normally. Well, you know, with Jesus, there's nothing normal. He doesn't follow the pattern of the culture or the society or the pattern of other marriages. It's interesting that Jesus now introduces something totally new into this ceremony. And, and they waited for it. You know, don't, don't take the bull by the horns. Don't grab the steering wheel and don't make something happen without instruction first. You know, it's, it's interesting to me how young couples sometimes, and even us older couples sometimes, we, we, we get tired of the way things are and, and we want to bring change into our marriage, into our relationship, into our family, and we fail to wait on God for instruction and we just do something because we're tired of the same old, same old, and something is better than what we got. Don't take any direction. Don't, don't start any, anything without first hearing from God first. And many times it may seem irrational, it, it may seem unclear, it, you may not know what the outcome is going to be, but if you'll by faith trust his leading and his directing, his direction, it, it will come out the way it's supposed to. And so we need to always wait for his instructions and as we, as we listen and as we we learn, and as we then begin to implement what God has done, notice we must then anticipate this miraculous intervention from Jesus himself because he will always intervene when by faith we trust his command and his precepts, and we, we by faith we step out and we do what he's asked us to do. Notice that, that, that somehow this water became wine. I have seen 
many, many times, couples that have come into my office who, who just don't see a way that this relationship is ever going to be solved, that they can ever uh, reconcile their relationship and their marriage and it can ever be restored after what they have done or their spouse has done or what's been done to them. But I'm here to tell you that, that with Jesus, we can anticipate when he becomes captain of our lives and Lord of our marriage and we begin to implement what he's asking us to do, we can see the miraculous become reality and God can change any heart, he can change any marriage, he can transform any life that is subject and willing to submit to him. I have seen couples that, that have been in there and, 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 and the spouse has, has been unfaithful and, and there's no way in the world that, that I could ever forgive. But I'm here to tell you that with the power of Christ, forgiveness can become reality. I, I have seen couples who, who have, have been so at odds for so long and then finally they come to their knees and they fall on their face before God and, and God bring reconciliation into those relationships. I have seen spouses who have turned to drugs and, and drug addiction and sexual perversions on the internet all of a sudden become cleansed and their relationship become renewed. There is nothing that God can't do for those who are married and who are committed to making Christ Lord of their individual life and Lord of their married life. He's a miracle worker. For all things can become possible when he's present. For his grace is always sufficient. So then we must finally appreciate the difference that Christ makes. Christ makes a difference. And verse 11 is not there, but verse 11 gives the glory and the credit to Jesus. And I, I'm not quite so sure that, that the best man and the, the groomsman and his family wanted to find out where this wine came from. Can you imagine that? They just, they just kind of blew it off and said, we don't care where it came from, let's just enjoy it. I mean, the groom and his family were responsible for this, and I can imagine there was an investigation. Uh, the best man, the, the, the master of ceremony, didn't know where it came from, but the, the slaves, the, the family members, the servants, they knew. And I can imagine there was a conversation going, where did this come from? Well, it came from the servants. So we go to the servant, where did this come from? Well, Mary told us to do whatever that guy Jesus said, and we did whatever he said, and look, look at the result. And this was Christ's first incredible miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And he can bring miracle, miraculous things into your life if you will trust him and put your faith in him and follow him individually and together as a family. So let me ask you, what's, what's the condition of your marriage today? What's the condition of your marriage today? On a scale of 1 to 10, is it is it a 10? Hopefully there are no ones. Maybe a two or three or four or five. Have we learned to settle? Have we learned to compromise? Have we learned to just sort of back off and just, just sort of settle in less than when God intended our marriage to be? Because, you know, Pastor, our marriage is beyond hope. My spouse, they just don't see the light. I'm just too angry, too upset to be able to change. It's just hopeless. It's not going to happen. Baloney. I said baloney. Jesus can make a difference. And he will make a difference if we invite him to do so. The question is, what will you do? Will you invite him to be 
be your Savior and be the Lord of your life, to individually, to personally walk with Him in an intimate love relationship where He, as, as He's leading, you're, you're, you're submitting, you're admitting, you're, you're yielding, you're following, and He's becoming Lord of your individual life and your individual decisions and your thoughts and your feelings and your actions as you are following Him. He's becoming Lord and He's making a difference in your individual life. When that becomes reality, then He began then to make a difference in how you relate to your spouse. And when you begin to walk with Jesus and that relationship begins to take effect in your life and in your walk in your life, it will affect how you relate to your spouse. And it will affect how they relate to you. And you begin to realize that were it not for the grace of God, how could you go and how can you withhold forgiveness from them? How can you treat them this way? How could you do this? How could you think this? And it makes a difference. And then when the two of you begin to do that, Imagine the impact and the difference that makes in your marriage, in your family, and dare I say in here, your grandkids. Because I'm convinced that the children, if there's problems in your marriage, already know there's problems. And if there's problems in your marriage, your grandchildren see, hear, and know the problems. So I would say it ends here today in my life, in your life, in our life together as spouses, as partners, as companions, and as lovers for the glory of God. So that our family, our family, not become another, another statistic, and our children then become a recipient of what God wants to give through our union with our spouse. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com. Song inside my heart